Sunder, Episode 4, Section 1, 100 Days in Portland. I'm recording the first section of this episode on a park bench in Chapman Square in downtown Portland, across the street from the Multnomah County Detention Center. MCDC is where I spent six months in 1997 before being sentenced to prison. I will be sentenced a block over from here at the federal courthouse. For those of you who have been listening to my previous episodes, I usually start with talking about my 1997 bank robbery and the aftermath. But this episode, I'm switching the order up a little. I'm going to start this episode discussing the George Floyd protests of 2020. Here in downtown Portland was ground zero for some of the heaviest continual resistance in the Portland protests. When George Floyd was murdered by the police, no one knew that in the next months more than 10% of the adult population of the United States would participate in a protest against police brutality and for racial justice. Locally, we would have over 100 days and nights of continual demonstrations and resistance. At the time of the protests in 2020, I was working night shifts at Amazon up to 55 hours a week, but I was able to come out for at least 25 demonstrations and actions. I felt strongly that it was important to take a stand against rampant cases of police murdering people generally and people of color specifically in disproportionate numbers. Clearly, a lot of Portlanders felt the same and wanted change, real change, that politicians and our system is not ever going to provide. There were a lot of different actions one could attend. As a family, myself, my spouse, our at the time 16-year-old son, we could go to a street corner during the day and hold signs and banners in front of a neighborhood church with others and encouraged drivers to honk or show support. I attended a number of rallies and mass marches where speakers exhorted the crowd and then as a group we marched to a rally point in the city. And I attended some of the nightly protests in front of the quote justice center here in downtown Portland where the law enforcement fired flashbangs, tear gas, pepper ball munitions, quote non-lethal munitions and used sonic LRAD attacks. The same law enforcement that slashed protester tires, scooped up cell phone data, and kidnapped protesters off the streets in unmarked vans. I got my own dose of tear gas and pepper ball fragments at some of the downtown protests, though by no means much compared to many dedicated and serious protesters and activists, some of whom suffered severe injuries at the hands of the police. Coming home, the first thing was to wash clothes and shower to get the stink of tear gas off. Whenever I or Ms. Sunder would go out while the other was at home, the person at home would wait with secure comms networks, encrypted networks, of support built during the protests to hear that folks got back safely, or else provide or direct pickups of those in need of assistance. Ms. Sunder attended a number of the protests as well, including one of the neighborhood actions as a volunteer medic. During George Floyd, we went out as a family sometimes to like daytime protests, and yeah, you went out to some protests, and you also volunteered to do some medical support for one of the um, rallies and protests here locally. Yeah, no, I mean I have a current CPR and first aid. Um, and at some point, they're asking for people to come out and assist people medically, so. I got into some group who's vague, and I don't think I could ever find him again if I wanted to. <laughs> and we we ended up going somewhere near in our neighborhood. Cops started throwing canisters of gas. So we started walking away. And as we were walking away, somebody fell down. So I paused and looked back. 
At that point, a cop hit me with his billy club in my upper right arm um, and knocked me to the ground and said something along the lines of, move faster. Which, I was just like, you know, knocking somebody to the ground is probably not the best way to get them to move any fucking faster, for one. But And I, I've since found out that that's happened to, like, dozens of people who are doing that sort of thing. Yeah, the cops were... Particularly brutal, particularly brutal to anybody who had any sort of medical or was assisting anyone. They were targeting medics, they were targeting journalists, they were targeting anybody they could get their hands on, it seemed Tar- like. Targeting anybody who was slow, so, which, yeah. yeah. And I, I suspect I know which one it is, too. So. Yeah, uh, I mean, there was that, and there was a whole wall, wall of moms sort of debacle, which originally was just some people showing up, um, as people do in Portland, to see what's going on, and, and deciding that they wanted to protect people who were agitating for their rights. I've only went out a few times, but one of the times we went out and we were forming a wall around um, Mr. Ford, former Black Panther, yeah. so that he could speak. And I thought that was pretty good. But also, it was there was a lot of chaos and there was a lot of different groups trying to convince people to do different things. So it just wasn't a good or cohesive mass movement, really, because there was what three or four different groups with different agendas. The wall moms ended up being sort of a pawn in their game a lot of times. Where they'd be like, no, go over there. I'm just like, oh, I'm just going to stick around Mr. Ford because <laughs> he often showed up at events and would speak. And he's somebody that we've seen speak like a, a good decade before when we went to a local meeting about Black Panthers in Portland. I think, I think that's hard, and it was hard for a lot of people in Portland because a lot of us aren't actually from here, so they didn't know who were the good community connections or not, right? So they just would listen to any voice and follow them, no matter how bad the ideas were sometimes. What do you think is an important takeaway take from like George Floyd uprising that people broadly, but the left especially, needs to learn in Portland like to be better prepared or to do better next time uh, something like this happens? Well, I, I think oftentimes people just don't know who they're organizing with. Like they grasp at somebody because they have the right look without knowing what their politics or motives are. Um, I can think of several different cases. For example, the there was a minister who was in charge of the NAACP who was basically using people as slave laborers restaurant, which, you know, that's not a good look at all. And, and you see uh, the current Portland government tapping the Albina ministry because they're the only people who are willing to say it, it's totally fine to, like, ram through two more lanes of highway through this already decimated formerly black neighborhood. I mean, that that's the sort of stuff you see. Or um, Teresa Rayford. Uh, I, she was had a place down in Albina neighborhood. It was a former Albina um, art center. And she, her group got kicked out of there. And I'm not sure why, but I know they raised a lot of money, and I heard they got a lot of cars and not much accounting. So, I, I mean, the, the grift is, is great. Like, anybody can pop up a Venmo or a GoFundMe, but what are they actually doing? 
right? And, and sometimes there's, there's people who do good work for a long time, um, and you don't have to necessarily agree with them, but they're, they're probably a better bellwether of, of who to actually work with, right? Like jobs with justice. Some, some younger people who we've worked with in the DSA started getting involved with the NAACP. So and I think that's a good way for them to build connections and, and to further community stuff. Because the current city elite in Portland used to tap the NAACP whenever they wanted somebody to to give them a good shine, right? And make their project look like it's diverse. And I noticed they don't do that anymore. They had to go to some other group that's even smaller. Hopefully that will help to some degree if people make more connections like that. But it's hard. It takes time and you have to meet people and you have to pay attention. But on the other hand, Portland's not that big, so it doesn't take that much time. You don't have to meet that many people. (laughs) Wall of Moms was an important development in the local protests. Hundreds of mothers coming out to show support and stand together with the protesters. Yet the Portland left, with its incoherent politics and under pressure from agent provocateurs desperate to cultivate those divisions, found a way to derail this real and heartfelt push for solidarity in the face of oppression. Wall of Moms got accused of taking attention away from the movement, for overreaching and co-opting and attempting to profit somehow from their position. What could have been instrumental in the work to legitimize and build the seeds for a broader mass movement was instead demobilized and told to stand down. The important limit of Wall of Moms, along with the George Floyd protests broadly, was this was mobilizing rather than organizing. People mobilized into direct action often did not have the unbreakable solidarity to win demands, to survive attacks by the press, by the police state, or by an exploiting power like a workplace boss. Mobilizing generally lacks a credible plan to win demands. A lot of the direction from people in the protests, including many Portland, Oregon, Democratic Socialists of America chapter leaders, was to wear all black and become unidentifiable. Some followed that line, but I believe strongly there's a place in mass politics to identify your affiliation, especially if you are out protesting in mass and not on a special mission. I would wear my red DSA hoodie and bring a DSA flag as well as a Black Lives Matter flag to the downtown events, rallies and marches, and meet up with like-minded folk within our chapter when possible. There was concern within our chapter that by attending in DSA gear it was either risky or a co-optation, drawing attention away from the uprising focal points. But in many other cities, the DSA was able to march in mass and did fine and did not co-opt the messaging. The role of socialists, especially socialist organizers in my opinion, is to focus on identifying and amplifying clear, winnable demands. Too often a protest results in a brief catharsis for participants. The next day or next week the demands, if any clear demands are presented in the first place, are not furthered nor achieved. Within our DSA chapter, I had already seen a tendency towards creating a subculture rather than a mass movement, with the inherently undemocratic and insular politics that subcultures require. The 2020 Black Lives Matter protests amplified those political differences and saw the flavor of an online purity politics being used heavily to create all-or-nothing positions. Many chapters across the U.S. struggled similarly, and I was thankful for being a member of a caucus within the DSA that provided political education and helped me better understand the questions at hand, as well as the history of systemic racial oppression within the U.S. broadly. One issue that was highlighted right away was the Portland left was not well connected to the local formations of the black community, which itself contains diverse classes, views, and goals. I think some efforts have been made, but there is much more work to do. 
Black Port Portlanders make up less than 6% of the total population. The history of Portland and Oregon is painfully and broadly racist. If another direct action around racial justice kicked off today, would those Portlanders who consider themselves advocates and supporters of justice have stronger connections to people of color in Portland? I think there is some advancement, but there remains insular tendencies that must be overcome. My experience in the working class and in prison prepared me for solidaristic action. Organizing bakery workers for their union vote and a contract fight was a direct lesson. Participating in prison food strikes taught me directly the power of solidarity. But I was not prepared for the use of identity politics as a divide and conquer strategy by those with whom I was in alliance. I found some members of my own DSA chapter, in my opinion, substituting political arguments for identity-based arguments. I saw amazing academics with a grounding and real struggle like Adolf Reed Jr. disinvited from speaking to self-identified socialists and labeled as ignoring the importance of racial identity and only making class-based arguments and analysis. I was used to the state or the boss using identity as a weapon, not us doing that to each other. It was incredibly frustrating to see progress and clear demands stalled and derailed by infighting and positioning, and to see clout chasers and self-promoting grifters work to personally profit off the Black Lives Matter protests at the expense of forward motion on winnable demands. I was shown in real time the need for political education and organizing within the left. Identity and the history of racial and gender oppressions must be acknowledged and understood. Ignoring or dismissing either causes real damage to organized struggle. But at the same time, identity politics is unable to win any demands as a primary organizing factor because wins require majority positions, and identity is too often a tool used by the oppressors to divide and conquer. The larger the base of a mass movement, the greater the power of that movement. In the same way a prison strike is prisoners versus captors and a labor strike is workers versus bosses, the central role of class is the water we swim in and is the organizing principle of our social hierarchies of oppression. The challenge is to acknowledge identity and then integrate struggles to find common cause in a larger movement, a larger identity. Let's talk about law enforcement in Portland. Police locally had been investigated by the Department of Justice in 2012, which found Portland officers disproportionately used violence against people undergoing mental health crises. A settlement in 2014 with the DOJ found the police locally unable to comply with the terms of the settlement for nearly every year afterwards. In 2020, the police themselves documented over 6,000 use-of-force actions against protesters. During the 100 days of George Floyd protests, hundreds of outside law enforcement officers were brought in to rampage freely against the people of Portland, assaulting protesters at will and using military-grade weapons of war against the people demanding police accountability. Going to the actions at the Justice Center downtown was exhilarating and the desire to counter the police addictive. But the question has to arise, what's our winnable demands? The reason we could rail against the barriers and fences was because of the police, kitted out with thousands of dollars each in military weaponry, were choosing to not use lethal force. I wanted more than a standoff with law enforcement, more clear demands, more disciplined, long-term efforts to build a mass movement that has the power to affect real change. Historically, the Occupy movement of 2011 and 2012 fought against the lack of democracy and social and economic inequality. The slogan, we are the 99%, came from this historic fight. Occupy was also a very real example of being good at identifying the problem, but unable to win demands. This has to change, and in my mind, the only path to that change is doing the real work of building a mass movement that has disciplined and has learned unbreakable solidarity, 
that can't be derailed by identity politics nor by agent provocateurs. Today in Portland, there are still lots of Black Lives Matter yard signs. I imagine many in those households believe the message to matter, but for the million-dollar mansions in some neighborhoods, it seems a more cynical and hollow gesture. Many of those same folks in their mansions, when canvassed on local ballot initiatives or social issues, are painfully, obviously, socially conservative, and aligned with the people demanding the police have more funding, that the households be forcibly moved into sanctioned camps, and a back-to-brunch agenda of the status quo and the comfortable. It's going to take much more than yard signs to change conditions. It's going to take building a movement in person, together. There is a place for black bloc tactics, a place for dressing in all black and being indistinguishable. As a brief tangent, the number of people in all black who got convicted over their visible tattoos is a cautionary tale. Law enforcement has always used tattoos to track and ID people. During COVID, masks made sense, but the masked and all-black outfit tactic broadly meant that the groups were easy to infiltrate by confidential informants, agent provocateurs, and law enforcement generally. Some folks who get attracted to the movement can get overexcited and escalate unnecessarily. Certainly there can be a disagreement about the level of escalation required. But also, there were numerous documented cases of police infiltration for the purpose to gather intel and or create scenarios that would discredit or allow the police to have an excuse to engage. The tactic of black bloc without solid political education and discipline can fail to achieve desired outcomes. The media locally and nationally focused on property damage and on painting the protesters as anarchists and anti-fascists. The Trump administration moved to brand every protester with these labels. Right-wing media loves to point at Portland and there were people across the US convinced that Portland was a burning dystopia but there were tens of thousands of participants in Portland from diverse viewpoints and backgrounds. Let's also be clear that I have no personal beef with my anarchist and anti-fascist siblings. I identify as an anti-fascist myself in the everyday anti-fascist variety. I will speak more on the subject in a future episode. I respect my anti-fascist and anarchist comrades, but there were a lot of everyday folk who more than often than not lacked a clear political identity who just wanted to support an end to police killings and support rights for people of color. Think of the wall of moms or the brief-lived wall of dads. Think of the thousands of students on the streets, the teens from Sunrise, the families who want a better life for themselves and their neighbors and community. Yet the media and the government focused unendingly as painting Portland and Portlanders as an unruly mob in an urban hellscape. Commenters and armchair observers outside Portland had a vested interest in portraying this broadly supported an effort as illegitimate and to excuse the actions of law enforcement. That constructed narrative is not what I experienced. Mostly what I saw and felt directly was people out together, demanding better and determined and hopeful, lifting each other up and showing solidarity. After the 2020 protests, media stories focused heavily on the corruption within the Black Lives Matter organization working hard to erase the tens of millions of everyday people who participated in the largest protest movement in U.S. history, and they buried the excessive and violent response by law enforcement. It's important for Portlanders broadly and the Portland left to learn from the uprising and to learn why and how concrete demands were derailed. The powerful will use this same playbook in the future if we don't learn and if we let them. The need for political education and inoculation the need for building real and unbreakable solidarity between ethnic and racial and political groupings is critical, or we will again be divided and conquered and lose the next battle for real change. Let's build that grounded mass movement together.
I went downtown to get another guy out of jail and they, they arrested me on a secret indictment. They put the shotgun in my back and they took me upstairs, transported me out to Rocky Butte. You got you guys are probably up there a little bit younger than I am. You guys remember the old Rocky Butte jail. It wasn't downtown at the Justice Center. You know, and uh, the, the Portland City Jail, you know, it was second to none in filth and, and uh, right on second in Oak, Oakdale. The party had a 10-point platforming program. We were just still trying to get our footing. The, plat the number seven of the 10-point platforming program said, we want to immediately end to police brutality and murder of black people. It's not going to come from Washington, D.C. It's not going to come from the state capitol. It's going to come from down here on the streets. <laughs> that guy who was on, the, the policeman that was on George Floyd's neck, you know, uh, just the way he had his foot on his neck, you know, and looking all calm and easy until they took the life out of him. That, that's, the kind, that's the kind of man the CIA can, can use, you know, uh, 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 secret intelligence of the guys down at the, uh, the, the College of the Americas, you know, where they train all the assassins to go all throughout the world. 800 military installments in over 130 countries, you know, Hello. and uh, we got to stop this stuff, you guys, and, make, and bring all this home, you know, take it to, keep it in the streets, keep it in the streets. They can't stop this, they can't stop this, you know? They have the Black Lives Matter. Hi, I'm Brian, the host of Sunder. In the podcast, I'll walk you through an armed bank robbery I committed in 1997 and the aftermath, so there's true crime described from the first person. I'll also be discussing politics from the point of view of a volunteer labor organizer and socialist, so it is a political podcast. And lastly, I will talk about how to break free of the zero-sum paralysis of this life to sunder the bonds of suffering, how to take action and change this world in your community right now. If you look at the world around you and wonder what future there is for you, or the generations that come after you, you are not alone. If you want more than online endorphin rushes and soul-crushing doom-scrolling, keep listening and know you are not alone. If you want a path to liberation from the life of exploitation, you are not alone. This podcast is about sundering those bonds that cause you suffering and fighting for a better world. This is a worthwhile mission and there are goals to reach and obstacles within ourselves and in the external world to overcome. Let's hunt together. Welcome to Sunder. Section 2. Do not pass go. In the next morning after my surgery, I am transferred to another hospital. I'm placed in a wing that is set aside for prisoners. A deputy is stationed at the end of the hall. I'm going to be heading to jail soon once my collapsed right lung is healed enough to pull the chest tube. When your lung collapses, airs enter the cavity between the lung and your chest, causing the lung to shrink and no longer be able to inflate. When this occurs, you are sh short of breath constantly. If both lungs are collapsed, you asphyxiate. A way to solve this is to insert a chest tube into the cavity and attach that tube to a machine which sucks the air out of the cavity, allowing the lung to reinflate. The machine, the size of a large router, makes a wet gurgling sucking sound attached to the foot of my bed. I'm on pain meds and on a long chain shackled by one ankle to the hospital bed, just long enough to allow me to shuffle to a bathroom inside the hospital room. It is 1997. The World Trade Centers are still standing, Bill Clinton is president, and no one knows what Google is. 
Seinfeld is the most popular TV show, and the FBI has not yet pivoted to focusing on war on terror investigations. Any bank with FDIC insurance means the crime of bank robbery can be picked up by the feds, who can decide to prosecute or toss it to the state courts. Most bank robberies in the 90s were picked up federally. So with my name, the FBI start their investigation. I had no criminal record before I was arrested. Before being shot and arrested, I lived in a shed that I had partially converted into living quarters behind a rental house in southeast Portland. I had about five housemates in the main house. The number of people staying varied year to year. I slept in a sleeping bag on a thin pad on the shed floor. The door of the place opened toward a 15 by 30 foot raised bed garden I had built myself. When we had moved onto the property, the backyard had been overgrown with an eight-foot-tall thicket of Siberian blackberries, covering rusting debris and trash. I had cleared the space methodically, turning the soil by hand, composting and building up the garden beds. Most of my housemates were musicians, and two different bands practiced in the basement of the house. The day I was shot and arrested, my friend Bhakti's band, Freight Train Casanova, had all nine members in attendance for practice, when the FBI knocked on the door. I'll let Bhakti tell the story in his own words. One day we're at band practice, downstairs with my band Freight Train, and we're just like doing what we do. We had a large band, there's like nine of us, and so it was one of the few rehearsals we had everybody there, and so that was always a hard thing to get, the whole band, and we were all there that particular day, and we were going at it, and suddenly we hear a knock on the back door of the basement, and so... I'm hearing something, and I just kind of like, just because we were loud, and so I just kind of ignored it, and I figured if somebody wants to come in, and come in, the door wasn't locked. And then it's a really big knock, and a kick on the door, and we stopped, and I was like, who the hell is that? And they're like, FBI, you know? And so, when they said it, I just thought, like, some flip comment someone said, and something like that, I was like, fuck you, come on in, whatever else, and the, the door opens, and there's two plain clothes uh, guys there, and so, but they just they didn't look. They looked like a, you know, a bad TV commercial or something you'd see from a classic movie. But they were their clothing, their, was like you know, cheap suits basically, and uh, they looked just regular dudes. There was nothing about them that was very dynamic. But they tried to be official about themselves. And so, um, I looked at the guys. I was like, "What the fuck? Who are you?" And so they flashed their badges real quick to us to show their FBI. And so they asked me my name. I was like yeah, that's me. What the hell? Like, can we talk you upstairs? And I was like, well, we're in the middle of band practice here, man. You guys come back later. <laughs> it's like, no, this, we need to talk to you now. It's something serious. I was like, okay, guys. I'm like, you guys do your thing. Or I'll be back down in a minute. And so we go up to the living room. And at that point, I'm there. I'm kind of like, all right, this is serious shit. Man. I don't know what the fuck happened. I'm thinking, what did I do? Right. You know, something going on here. And then they asked if I knew you by name. And I was like, yeah, he's known for a long time. He's been a friend of mine. He lives out here in the backyard this house here they go yeah well can you describe him to us you know and so i start talking about you i'm like he's a tall thin guy really skinny super skinny you know thin guy and they're like so when you say skinny what do you mean by skinny and i'm like well you look at a guy and you see certain people you're like wow that guy is really skinny he could use a little bit of food some meat in his bones he's that kind of guy and so he's trying to describe himself and he's like about my size Kind of maybe a little taller, but average height, average build. And I was like, no, he's nothing like you. Nothing like you. And he was like, he's like, well, you know, I mean, you look at the guy. I mean, here he is. I go, he's, I go, if I would look at you too, I'm like, he's short. You're kind of average, stocky built. 
That's what I see. You're not tall, thin at all. It's completely different. You got the wrong guy. It's not the right guy. He goes, well, the scripture we got here was short, stocky. He's got a middle height, maybe six foot, you know, medium build, square. I'm like, wrong guy. Sorry, you got the wrong guy. So whoever you busted, that's bad for him, but that's definitely not Brian. So we're done here. And he was like, no, 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 you know how to describe him. And he started like bringing up more things about you, where you worked at, um, and uh, um, just a few other things in general. And I was like, yeah, he definitely works there. Yeah, he definitely does that. Yeah, he's there. But that's your, as far as the description goes, maybe it's somebody else that works there. Maybe he used his name, but that's not the guy. So he's like, well, okay, well, we'll finish the questions. And at the time, it was like some of the questions they asked were super, really stupid. And so I was very flipped with them, I noticed at the time, because I didn't really care. And I thought when they described your description, they had the wrong person. Right. So everything from that place on became your idiots. And, <laughs> and uh, they were super funny because they were just like, every time I'd said something, they would confer with each other and then come back with another question that was like, I'm like, I can hear what you're saying over there. I'm, I'm in the conversation. Because sometimes I'd be like, no, that's not it. You're wrong. No, he didn't do that either. And then they'd be like, oh, really? Like, well, I thought he was like a tall or whatever else. I'm like, no, nah, wrong, wrong. Like, and I'm just completely interrupted. They're like completely in. And so I thought, what a bunch of idiots are working for the FBI. Unbelievable they hire people like this. And so they left. Didn't think anything about it. And so we went back to practice. And I was like, that was weird. Some guys, they, they had the wrong. I thought my roommate robbed a bank or some shit. I don't know what the hell is going on here. asking me these weirdest questions. Um, and so uh, I didn't think, I said, I'm going to tell him when I see him. But he's going to be like freaked out that somebody used his name. And so later on that evening, we're sitting down, uh, uh, hanging out in the living room, and we're watching some on TV, and the commercial break comes on, and they talk about, hey, the latest thing happened tonight, whatever else, uh, bank robber on a bicycle, whatever else, and they're talking about stuff, and I'm looking, and I realize, I'm looking on the TV screen, and lo and behold, I see my roommate Brian on a bicycle riding down the road, and some cops from a distance they must have had a helicopter or something where they got the shot, but you can clearly see he's here. There's a cops coming at him. I was like, holy fucking shit. Then they showed a photo of you after the arrest on the on the TV, and I was like, oh, my God, this is really happening. I can't believe it. I was just floored. I was completely, I didn't speak just for the night. And uh, But you were nowhere to be found to talk to. It wasn't right. for like, I want to say it was at least two weeks maybe after you got out of the hospital and, you're, and they had you in lockdown in the city downtown. I came to go see you down there. Yeah, at like, MCDC, yeah. Yeah. And the first thing I did when I saw you, I was like, you fucking idiot. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. you had talked about things, but I didn't put A, B, and C together. You were like, had a plan. I didn't realize it was this plan to do this, but you had said you had a plan to make some money. You were going to try to get paid and like get out and do things. And it just, I never correlated that you would actually go through with something to this extreme and rob a bank. And yeah. So, when it happened, I remember just being just completely floored and blown away. And, you know, you, you handled it better than most, I guess, in that situation. But, like, you know, the the things you told me later about it and how you weren't going to get killed and you were, we're going to go alive, you know, let them take you alive and all that and how you changed your mind. It really put everything in perspective to me of, like, who you really were as a person. I had known you well enough to know that you weren't suicidal, but you were also fed up. And you were also done with the status quo. And you had worked really hard for a long time uh, at the sushi bar and uh, at the bakery of the two jobs that you were at. And both jobs you were at for lengthy times. You weren't like, you're not the kind of person that just kind of goes from one job to the next. And so I knew that about you. But you also were like, you, you were a planner. 
you'd come up with a plan and you'd execute if you know and you'd think all the angles that you could think of you know yeah. I, sure, I missed quite a few uh, you missed angles. quite a few there were some yeah. key things now we found out later about how they handle things that if you had known you would have not done the way you done yeah. with them but then you just don't know had you even got away with that would that have stopped there a few years later freight train casanova put out an album entitled harsh and tender mercies including this track bike heist inspired by my bank robbery I like the pace and the structure of this instrumental and appreciate the nod. After the police shot me, and as I was laying handcuffed to a hospital bed, the FBI knocked on my fiancée's door. She lived a half mile away with four college students and had her own reactions to FBI suits showing up, based on her family history. So, yeah, when I was growing up, uh, my parents were both socialist and active in their party, and... Um, we were probably under surveillance at some point in the 70s because I certainly remember hearing lots of clicks on the phone on our landline when we picked it up. You'd hear a click, click, click. I, I recently talked to somebody who's a National Guild lawyer and she was like, oh yeah, I remember that. That was definitely, in her opinion, a sign that we were being, our phone was being tapped. But my dad always had this thing of, of saying, if, if somebody comes to the door, just, just tell them, no, they can't come in. And don't say anything except along the lines of, I can't talk to you or, you know, my parents will get me a lawyer. That's all. So I, was, I wasn't particularly afraid of talking to the FBI in that I wasn't going to say anything. And they showed up and they were like, can we come inside? And I was like, no, because the last thing I wanted to do was poking around our house. I, I was living, um, like, what, five blocks away from where you were living 
the last thing I want to do was provide a bunch of fuel for people poking around trying to find something. And they're like, do you know Brian Denning? And I said, yes. Do you know where he was today? I was like, no. And they said, here's a stack of photos. Do you identify, are any of these people Brian? And I just flipped through them really quickly without doing any pausing or changing my facial expression. There's like 25 photos of like just random bank robbery photos. They're obviously security cameras of people in various states of um, obscuring their faces. And I asked if where you were, I think maybe. And I don't think they said much, if anything. And then they asked if my um, old beater 1970s Datsun was used by you. And I said, no, would you like to buy it though? <laughs> it's for sale. And they quickly became less interested in that. So <laughs> like they didn't want to look at it or anything like that. Like it doesn't really run, you want to buy it? So, and they left. That, that was the basis of that. I can't recall exactly what happened next in the timeline, but I did get in touch with your lawyer at some point, Stephen Wax. Um, My public defender. Yeah. Yeah. Since, since it was federal, you were assigned a public defender. Um, and they actually had somebody who was uh, an investigator that was working with them as well. I had quite a few conversations with. But, but that week, I was still taking chemistry classes at Portland State. And there was somebody who I was studying with. And I said, I think my boyfriend just got arrested for bank robbery. And she was like, get away from him now. And I was like, hmm, I don't know about that. Because it seems like you kind of were in a desperate strait, to say the least. So. Yeah, I mean, it's not the worst advice, generally, uh, to tell someone this person seems destructive and maybe that's a bad... Yeah. I know, it's it's not, but I, I think I had some falling out of friends after that too, because they're like, What is she doing? I don't wanna I don't wanna be around this mess, sort of thing. Yeah. And how did your parents react to to the whole thing? Oh, they they weren't thrilled obviously. Um oddly enough my mother was more into it than my dad was. My dad was more like, Oh, this seems like a bad idea. And then you reached out to my parents. And then I reached out to your parents. Uh, and I knew you didn't have a good relationship with your parents. But I figured they should at least be informed. And that was probably one of the most awkward phone calls I've ever made. <laughs> yeah. Because I call up your house and I said, Hey, this is my name. I'm dating your son. And I just found out that he was arrested and he's in Multnomah County Jail. And here's my number. Um, please give me a call if you come into town or if there's anything you want to discuss. And um, I basically got yes, no, yes, no from your dad. And then found out later they drove down from Seattle area, stopped and talked to the cops and left. I'm like, well, that's a that's a great relationship. So so glad I reached out. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I did that people often don't think about particularly when there's a crisis, is I wasn't sure what was going to happen because when there's a complicated legal issue, you just don't know. Yeah. Um, but I was able to reach out to uh, 
um, the board of lawyers in Oregon and say, I have questions about this particular case. And they connected me with a lawyer who did those particular cases. And they actually gave me some pretty decent advice. Like, this is probably what's going to happen. Uh, you don't have to hire a lawyer because one will be appointed to him. That sort of advice. And, and, and they gave me decent advice about what I was obligated to say or not say, depending on what I knew. And frankly, I didn't know anything about what was going on. So that made it a little easier. But people often get married in cases like this, so they don't have to testify against people. But... That wasn't the case in this case, so. Right. Anyway, that that part was interesting, and, and I've given that advice to like hundreds of people over the years. It's like, we have this complicated legal problem. Have you just have you discussed talking to the lawyer's board, <laughs> and maybe getting somebody who would actually give you legal advice rather than just asking all your friends and talking to cops, <laughs> for example. The FBI suits also show up at the bakery where I had worked for nearly two years and question the shift manager about me, trying to build a picture, seeing if they can glean anything which can connect me to other robberies or criminal activities. There's nothing here for them to glean. I never discuss any crimes I committed successfully as a rule, and hadn't said a thing to co-workers nor anyone else about my bank robbery plans. I have no idea the FBI is contacting friends and family at the time. After three days, I'm briefly uncuffed from the bed, and a nurse walks me up and down the hall to keep some muscle tone and gauge rate of recovery, carrying the gurgling box that's keeping my right lung inflated. I'm weak, three days in bed, plus sutured gunshot wounds, surgery wounds, a chest tube in my side, and a broken right arm have left me pretty drained. I'm here for another five days. Once my lung is healed enough, the nurses pull the chest tube from my side. As all my clothes are cut away for surgery the day I was shot, I am taken from the hospital to the jail in an open-backed hospital gown and footies. Belly chained and shackled at the ankles so I have to shuffle. A, a jail van drives me to jail, the Multnomah County Detention Center, known as MCDC, in downtown Portland. I am processed, fingerprinted again, stripped, and searched. The hospital clothes go in a bag and I am issued pink boxers, a pink t-shirt, blue hospital-style scrubs with the jail initials on them and pinkish-orange and transparent jelly shoes. Standard prisoner dress at MCDC. I'm recuffed and moved to a single cell instead of general holding, likely due to my injured condition. Anytime you are moved from one area to another, it is in handcuffs behind your back. With my broken right arm, this is a careful, slow process. I can feel the spiral fracture grate. Once inside a cell, they unlock a smaller hatch in the center of the door, and you stand with the door to your back. Lean forward and push your wrists out the slot behind you to be cuffed or uncuffed. After some hours, I am recuffed and moved to a medical floor with a hospital bed. Like all cells in MCDC, there's a light that stays on 24-7, and in these medical cells, there's a camera for monitoring. I'm still pretty weak, having been in bed for about eight days. I'm on Vicodin for the pain, which I receive once a day at a pill line in the medical unit where staff watch me swallow the pill, and then I have to open my mouth and show I haven't hidden the pill in my cheek or under my tongue. The next day I am taken to my arraignment and meet my public defender. It's probably important to talk about the court process once a person gets arrested. If you are arrested and charged with a crime, within a reasonable amount of time, for example depending on your medical status, you have an arraignment hearing. The prosecutor sets out legal charges and gives a brief outline for the reasoning behind the charges. Your lawyer can enter a plea, usually not guilty at this point, 
and has the opportunity to very briefly push back or otherwise question the basis of such charges. A judge decides what happens next and sets a date for your next hearing. Once the arraignment is completed, your defense team is entitled to what is called discovery, the documents and evidence upon which the prosecution is basing their case. Discovery takes some time, usually weeks, to be shared. The purpose of the discovery is so your lawyer can build a defense and give you counsel as to whether it makes more sense to plead innocent or guilty. This takes time, and courts are generally a slow grind. What a lot of civilians don't know is that it is very common for the time between arraignment and your trial to be five or six months, and much longer for more complex cases, especially capital cases. Those can take over a year, if not years. That's time you are generally spending in jail. At my arraignment, the prosecutor outlines what he sees as the seriousness of my crime and quotes a witness who believed I had discharged my weapon in the bank, which is not true. I tell my public defender this is false, and he quizzes the prosecution very briefly on whether they could determine if the firearm had been discharged. The plea of not guilty is entered. I have an opportunity after to talk more with my public defender, and then am transported back to my cell on the medical floor. After a few weeks, as I am healing, I stop taking the pain meds. The Vicodin leaves me loopy in a fugue state most of the time, and I don't like it. As the pain meds wear off, my wounds itch and hurt. With my healing broken arm, I won't sleep on my right side for about five months. At least off the Vicodin, I can tell when I'm awake and asleep. Nelson Mandela, who spent 27 years in South African prisons before being elected president of South Africa, said, No one truly knows a nation until one has been inside its jails. A nation should not be judged by how it treats its highest citizens, but its lowest ones. Jail is different from prison. Most people in jail have not been sentenced, and many have not yet been charged, and most are awaiting the actions of the court. A sentence of a year or less generally is completed in jail. A sentence of a year and a day or longer is served in prison. About 12 million people in the U.S. will cycle through jails this year. With that high churn, this means you have a broad mix of people, from drunken disorderly charges to homicide, put together. Jail populations are in flux, usually waiting for the process to move them on to prison or to release them. People in jail often watch their plans and their lives outside of jail fall apart. Their familial ties, relationships, job, housing, property, all in free fall and often largely out of their control. Some in jail are put to work, but many are simply in limbo, stewing in their own thoughts. This time to stew and not much exercise can create tension and conflicts. On top of that, local jails often vary widely, but most are not well-funded. Food and conditions can be rough. I'm transferred a few weeks later to a regular housing pod, which means first going back into a regular holding cell. This is the worst and most chaotic condition in the jail. A holding cell usually contains 5 to 30 prisoners. There's one toilet, which if you're lucky isn't clogged and has toilet paper. Concrete benches line the walls, with some additional bolted-down benches in the room. You have no information about how long you will be there. Periodically, a deputy will come to the door and unlock it, and either call for someone or put more prisoners in. The cell smells like stale sweat, bad breath, and fear and piss and shit. Some are nervous and talk incessantly. Some are trying to sleep. Some are agitated and kick at the door or try to talk to deputies as they pass and convince them of their urgent needs. Some are coming down off their dependency or their high and are sweating and sick. It's a stressful place. Jails and prisons, as a rule, are loud. Everything is concrete and steel. Doors slam, keys jangle, prisoners and guards shout. 
Minding your own business and not being a target for someone else's boredom or rage are important focuses to cultivate. Developing a routine and something to look towards is harder to build in jail, but an absolute must if you have any significant amount of time incarcerated. Eventually, I'm taken up to a housing pod. That means being escorted past the control center behind thick glass through a sally port, a series of doors that have to be unlocked one at a time by the control center, and brought into an area two stories high with about 33 cells split roughly between two tiers. At the time I was at MCDC in 1997, it was still one person to a cell. This will be the only and last time during my incarceration that I have a cell to myself. A cement slab a foot off the floor holds a three-inch thick plastic-covered mattress. A stainless steel toilet and sink combo with a small metal mirror bolted to the wall above it is standard. A security light behind reinforced plexiglass that never turns off is in each cell. A steel door with a narrow wire reinforced glass observation window at eye level and locking tray slot at waist level large enough to put your hands through to be cuffed. I have a pillow, pillowcase, sheet, towel, and thin blanket. There's a 12-inch tall, 6-foot-long window 5 feet off the floor along an external wall, showing the surrounding high-rises. We're about 7 floors up. Showers are single-person shower stalls on the bottom floor, accessible only during certain hours. A push-button delivers about 15 seconds of cold or lukewarm water, and has to be repeatedly pressed. Once a week, your prisoner clothing gets swapped out for fresh clothes. Once a day for an hour as a group, you are taken to a space... Several stories up, the external wall is instead a floor-to-ceiling chain-link fence, and there's a half-basketball court. Wind whistles through, and you can look down onto the downtown streets and see free people going about their lives. In the pod, there's tension between some groupings of prisoners. During the few hours of time in the pod when you aren't locked in your cell, sometimes disputes turn to surreptitious violence. There's cameras all over the place, but a few blind spots. A group of prisoners distract a prison guard while they sucker punch another prisoner. A convict encourages a loudmouth prisoner to step into the blind spot to fight, when tension between them flares. I spend my time writing letters, calling my fiancé occasionally, and playing chess with an older armed bank robber. The place is high rotation, so folks don't particularly stay long. A lot of prisoners are sent out to the Inverness Jail, sometimes called the farm, inside MCDC. There, prisoners are put to work. With my broken arm, lung, and gunshot wounds on the mend, I'm kept at MCDC. Jail food in 1997 is exactly the required number of calories and no more. It's also pretty gross. The milk is routinely day of expiration or over. The bread is periodically moldy. The butterscotch pudding is to be avoided because it will give you the runs and also, ugh, butterscotch pudding. The deputies who act as guards are petty and I will learn as time passes the lower the stakes and security level, the higher the pettiness of your captors. Deputies working at Multnomah County Detention Center got away at the time with mistreating prisoners, usually a mix of neglect, violation of rights, and outright assault. It seems little has changed. MCDC deputies were in the news this year, recently, for assaulting prisoners. Just this month, a ballot initiative passed locally, mandating increased inspections of conditions in the jails operated by the county. When I next speak with my public defender, he tells me the federal prosecutor is threatening that if I don't plead guilty, he'll kick the case to the state to prosecute and encourage them to charge me with kidnapping, for having moved the teller. It's unlikely the kidnapping charge will stick, but also I clearly got caught with the money and weapon and clothes I used in the robbery. I'm going to plead guilty and take some kind of plea deal. As I do some time in jail and speak with my public defender, I start to realize I'm a bit of an outlier from the norm. I don't have any priors, I don't have any crime partners. 
My motivations have some overlap, but many in the criminal lifestyle don't hold down regular jobs and rarely have strong political motivations. Most bank robbers are robbing to support their heroin addiction and to pay their rent. My public defender is a little unnerved by my suicidal ideation and political motivations and brings in a psychiatrist to interview me. That assessment goes fine, though like many convicts I have identifiable traits that lie somewhere between antisocial tendencies and sociopathy. Things like drug use, my criminal activity that risks or harms others, stealing in service of my drug addiction, a lack of regard for my own safety and the safety of others, and violence all fall in here. I should mention a lot of people share these tendencies but lack criminal records. CEOs and corporations also profile as sociopaths regularly. It's not one for one, but in any case, I passed the psych eval. I'm radicalized and I had an extremely poor cost-benefit analysis, but I'm not mentally incompetent. I'll mention here as well that I don't ever admit to suicidal ideations to my captors. It is clear from day one that people who go on suicide watch are being punished for their condition. Suicide watch in jail or prison means a paper jumpsuit, often cuffed to a bar, no blankets, etc., so I keep that to myself. Mental health issues are a stigma and not treated well in the U.S. Visits are regulated and are through a plexiglass window with a telephone receiver. The jail records and listens in on conversations, so if you are smart, you don't, as a rule, discuss details of your case in visiting nor over the phone. But it was good to see a few friends who came to visit, as well as my fiancé, visiting regularly. I felt like I had wrecked my life, and I hated myself mostly, and sometimes visits were a painful mix of happiness at seeing someone you care about and an acute embarrassment and shame and depression afterward. In the cells at night, you can occasionally talk through the plumbing to the next floor, and I had a few conversations with female prisoners on the floor above through my toilet. We talk about how we ended up in jail, about frustrations around the lack of control about our lives and relationships outside, about the conditions and the deputies inside jail. Guards would make the rounds and count prisoners, make sure you weren't suiciding or building weapons or losing your shit. That meant security lights on, in the cells, day and night, making it hard to sleep, and someone spying on you regularly. Some guards would sneak about, hands over their keys, tiptoeing from cell door to cell door, like peeping toms. It was perverse. We are social animals. The U.S. has the largest per capita prison population in the world, at over 2.3 million people currently incarcerated. And as a nation, we use solitary confinement quite commonly as a form of punishment. The United Nations identifies prolonged solitary confinement as a form of torture that can cause permanent psychological damage. The UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights cites the U.S. as one of the nations that appear to impose this torture in an often arbitrary and excessive manner. This isolation, this dehumanizing and psychologically debilitating effect, bleeds into our society broadly today. Chelsea Manning, the Iraq War veteran who was imprisoned for releasing data including video proof of U.S. war crimes, and later pardoned by Obama, spoke on the effects of isolation from her own experience as a former prisoner and in the context of people's behaviors post-COVID lockdown. She flagged the profound psychological impact of increased isolation. Periodically, everyone in a pod, the 30-odd prisoners in one housing group, are told to strip down to their boxers and marched out into a hall outside the housing unit while deputies go through each cell and ransack it, tossing everything around, searching for contraband supposedly like drugs or weapons, but usually more like an apple or a hard-boiled egg someone saved for a meal. 
It's a reminder of your status and that anything you possess can be destroyed or tossed, including your letters from your attorney or loved ones. Your photos, legal documents, and books can be taken or wrecked. This is your captors reminding you that you have only the rights they choose to respect. It's them flexing their control and power. One day in the pod, they announced the search and were all marched out in our boxers into the cinder block hallway, our backs against the wall. A deeply tanned deputy with a cop mustache, aviator sunglasses, and his pants tucked into his combat boots has a full-size but clearly young female German shepherd on a leash. He starts telling us about how we had better stay up against the wall and keep our hands covering our crotches and do not fucking move because his dog will attack us and bite us if we move an inch. He's going to run the dog past us to sniff for contraband. The dog whines and is clearly nervous, excited, and being trained. As the deputy is saying all this, the German shepherd squats down and she takes a huge runny shit in the middle of the hallway on the wax floor tiles. The powerful smell wafts down the hallway. A guy next to me, in response to the odor, turns his head away from the dog shit and says, God damn, and the prisoners start cracking up. The canine officer turns beet red and the tendons stand out in his neck as he roars, Shut the fuck up! Shut the fuck up right fucking now! We eventually stop laughing, and he marches the dog stiff-legged up and down the hallway past us, glaring daggers. No contraband found. We're marched back to our cells, and some unlucky trustee, a prisoner given work duties inside the jail, gets to clean up the dog shit. My fiancé visits me regularly, and while I can't talk about particulars to the case, I can discuss aspects of our physically separated lives, express my interest and attention, about a month into my time in jail, she broaches the subject of getting married. I would not have blamed her if she had instead broken off our relationship and walked away, or written a story titled, I Nearly Married a Dumbass. If a friend in a similar scenario had asked me what they should do, getting married to a guy on his way to prison would not have been my advice. Her decision to stay with me will cost her some friendships and certainly did not make her life easier in any way. I worry when we discuss it that I'm a millstone around her neck, dragging her down. I have no idea how much time I will be sentenced to, but it will be years, maybe even as much as a decade. At the time I think like this, I can't see what value I have, but I trust her and she loves me, so I will trust that there is something within me worthy of that love. I also weighed two other factors. One was that saying no to someone who is willing to marry you and that you love on your way to prison would be a brutal rejection. The second was that if we were married, she could at any time be able to annul or divorce. Her control over the relationship would be high. She started inquiries to find a judge willing to marry us. This will be a challenge. In the next episode, I'll talk about getting married in jail. Also, in the next episode, I'll be sentenced and start my prison time. I'll start learning how to live inside prison. We say that we must come to know the difference between mobilization and organization because the enemy will use mobilization to demobilize us. Mobilization is very easy, very, very easy. Because since we're people who are instinctively ready to respond against acts of injustice, anytime there's one little act of injustice, we can blow it up and we'll find people who come and make some mass demonstration around it. Miss Sally lost a job. Let's rally. She'll get a job back. People will come and rally. So-and-so got kicked out of school because the teacher's unjust. The unjust, the people will come and rally. They will come to rally at issues. 
And this is what mobilization does. It mobilizes people around issues. Those of us who are revolutionary are not concerned with issues. We're concerned with the system. The difference must be properly understood. The difference must be properly understood. Mobilization usually leads to reform action, not to revolutionary action. We must know clearly the difference between mobilization and organization. One of the characteristics of mobilization is that it is temporary. Organization is permanent and eternal. Clear differences must be made because the unconscious can usually be captured easily around one issue items, around mobilization items, but it's hard to catch them around organization. But these unconscious must be brought to organization. We must transform mobilization to organization. We say the enemy will come and use mobilization to demobilize us. If we're not careful, we allow mobilization to become events. The struggle is never an event. It's a process, a continual, eternal process. Section 3. Liberal Subjects to Paralyze Virtue Hoarders and the Antidote. Many folk in the United States show a pattern of springboarding from considering themselves broadly as someone raised in a liberal society to a radicalized state defined by its being to the left of organizing a mass movement. A safe position that cannot be criticized for compromise nor for mistakes. A position of unassailable virtue often characterized as having never held, sought, or built meaningful power to change conditions, so therefore never risking an error or in failing. Some of this virtue signaling makes sense in the perverse terrain of online spaces where negging the slightest flaws of others is rewarded. But that tendency on the ground can lack constructive purpose and can allow people to justify extreme positions which don't actually result in moving an issue, winning a demand, or building a mass movement. In reality, a position like this can be counterproductive and alienating to regular people. An example of this is in a subset of responses on Twitter to announcements of workplace actions, statements along the lines of, Since reparations for slavery and colonialism have never been enacted, I feel no need to respect a Starbucks worker's picket line. You can't step up for my struggle, why should I care for yours? The mental gymnastics required to find fault with the picket line or boycott here while claiming to take the most left position, it's not only anti-solidaristic, it's also an antithesis to actually building power. I've struggled in my life with the desire to see myself as a good person, and in some way being a convicted felon, and reviewing an unvarnished personal inventory of past actions, relieves me of that burden. I'm not a good person, per se. I can strip the illusion of goodness away, but I can also acknowledge that in the end, I'm just a person. I can avoid the need to identify myself as a bad person or wallow in self-recriminations, and instead accept myself with the understanding that most people are a mix of motivations and values and actions. Direct action is defined as, quote, the use of strikes, demonstrations, or other public forms of protest rather than negotiation to achieve one's demands, unquote. COVID lockdowns combined with the broad outrage the unwillingness of the militarized police to have any accountability resulted in a perfect storm of direct action as a release valve. But it is important in my mind to identify the real, serious work that actually gets the desired outcomes. Direct action is a tactic, but tactics are only effective when informed by an organizing strategy. You can win all the battles and lose the war without a strategy. 
And this decade, this volatile, critical, crucial decade of human history, of your life, requires strategy if you and your planetary siblings are going to win real change, not just feel good pretending to fight the man or taking an unassailable position 15 degrees further to the left than everyone else. So what is it going to take? What's harder than fighting cops in the streets or holding a seemingly radical yet powerless position? Organizing. Organizing like the United Teachers Los Angeles did in 2019 to win broad and transformational demands. That's direct action combined with what Jane McAvee calls unbreakable solidarity and a credible plan to win. Organizing stands in stark contrast to the mobilizing efforts like Black Lives Matter or Me Too or Occupy. These are also characterized by direct action, but lack the coherency and were easily undermined as a result. Interacting with strangers in person to organize together is the most grounding and simultaneously radical act you can undertake, in my opinion, and the forge of real political education. If you want to build real people power in your community or in your workplace, it requires connecting with other people. Organizing skills are practiced and honed in listening to and speaking with people. The listening part is especially important because few of us have anyone in our real lives that hears us and cares about our thoughts to any degree. We are an atomized and isolated people, especially so in this age of the internet. An organizing axiom is that organizing is 80% listening, and this is true. Speaking with others in person can disabuse you of many assumptions you may have and cleave through your theories regarding people. As you practice this skill with real love in your heart, it means meeting people where they are with a minimum of preconceptions. I emphasize in-person because there are tendencies online which are inherently anti-solidaristic and dehumanizing. In reality, a promise or pledge made from one person to another face-to-face -face, simply carries more weight psychologically and emotionally for most people. It means you are both real. In this age of exceptional emotional and intellectual isolation, our power as human beings is to defy the dehumanization of capitalism and connect with other human beings. There are some useful things online. The greatest is the ability to connect, as the public commons and public spaces have shrunk and atrophied. The ability to also realize there are many others in your world who share similar concerns, can, can connect people isolated in their life otherwise. But online life is not a healthy replacement for human face-to-face -face interaction, and we see the results of isolation in our society all around us. People down the rabbit hole and into unhealthy obsessions or incoherent beliefs and deeper mental health crises. If you and I want to build a future that is better than what we're currently heading toward, this will require a mass movement, and that means the radical act of talking to each other face to face. A way to do that is through door knocking and having interactions with strangers, not just those who have self-selected to share your personal views. Tabling, setting up a table with information which opens the door to a discussion, is also very useful for the same purpose. It is important to recognize that the purpose of the interaction is not sales and not, quote, winning an argument. It is instead using open-ended questions and listening to have an organizing conversation where the person decides for themselves what is at stake and what they want to do about it. This kind of conversation takes practice and preparation, framing the questions you are asking in a way that stimulates thoughtful response and really truly stopping and listening to what the other person says. But this is the work building connections, circles, and community, bringing people into contact with a concept or idea that empowers regular people to have agency in their lives and organizes the working class into a coherent, disciplined group with unbreakable solidarity. It doesn't happen without conversing with another human, 
risking their disapproval or rejection or judgment, but in that risk also opening the opportunity for connection, collaboration, and solidarity. It is what Karen Lewis of the Chicago Teachers Union did with her teacher and community siblings to defeat forces hell-bent on destroying public education, closing schools, and devaluing and disenfranchising entire communities. It's how, together, they won real, transformative rights for a better future. It is what Cesar Chavez did with fellow farm workers in the fields of California. This is what Angelica Maldonado did at the Amazon Fulfillment Center, JFK 8, on Staten Island, to help over 8,000 co-workers there win a union at Amazon. It is what you can do with practice and training if you are going to change this world. This is the work. This is what gets the goods. All right. I'm going to engage in some housekeeping and acknowledgments for a minute. This episode took longer than I thought to write, edit, rewrite, and record. I appreciate your patience. I will work to get more episodes out sooner than the last. I will also get some Patreon episodes and content together. I'm still building my podcasting chops. I want to express my appreciation for the podcast FOH, an acronym for Front of House, and the host's kind shout-out to Sunder. I had an opportunity to meet Lillian of FOH last month. As someone who has worked nearly a decade in BOH or back-of-house service industry jobs, I recognize the brutal emotional and physical toil of front-of-house, customer-facing work. That's partly why I stuck with back-of-house, as dealing with the boss is usually tiring enough, let alone customers. I also want to express my admiration for the hosts of FOH ability to discuss and riff off each other organically. I script out each of these regular episodes and worry over each sentence. Bearing one's soul is an exercise in bravery, and Kelly Sullivan and Lillian Devane make it look effortless. I encourage you to check out FOH and to subscribe to their Patreon. The next episode of Sunder continues to move the story forward. Subscribe and catch the whole tale. There's more to this story of bank robbery and politics and taking action in a troubled world. You can help me by rating and reviewing the podcast. Send a link to the podcast to a friend. Sunder is written, edited, and produced by Brian Denning. The theme song is by Holy Sons. You can contact Sunder at podcastsunder at gmail.com. Support the work being done here by subscribing on Patreon. Even better, become a dues-paying, participating member of your local DSA chapter. You have the ability to be brave and create a future with your siblings on this earth. A mass movement that changes the world. Good hunting. <laughs>